From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind. Your mind. Welcome to From the Void. Last week, I welcomed back retired detective Steve Hodell to discuss his two new books, The Early Years, The Further Serial Crimes of George Hill Hodell, M.D. If you haven't heard that episode yet, pause this one and go back and listen to part one first. If you have already heard it, then welcome back to part two, The Black Dahlia Avenger, The Early Years, on From the Void. Yeah, and, I, and it seems that every day that passes, it becomes exponentially more difficult to uh, to solve these types of crimes. I mean, we're coming up on uh, almost 100 years, you know, at this point. And as you mentioned in your books, you know, a lot of the evidence that existed at one point is now missing. And so, but you would think, as I'm reading this, my first thought is, if if in fact your dad is connected to even half of these, that gives... That gives us a lot more opportunity because hopefully there's evidence that exists in these other cases that might be able to link him to these murders. And and I would assume there's at least some out there that still exists. Yeah. Well, actually, let's take one of the cases. Um, I mentioned this, this dentist in Pasadena who got killed. uh, And he was known as the Don Juan dentist. (laughs) (laughs) They like, you know, they always came up with Nick. You'd see names for the crimes, and uh, he was a, a, a handsome, intelligent uh, dentist practicing in Pasadena, and they're certain that it was a uh, crime of passion, revenge crime. Uh, just before he was murdered, a, a woman comes to um, comes to his office, all excited, and tells him something. And then he immediately leaves. He says, well, I guess I need to go. So he tells his secretary, I'm, I'm off. I'm, I'm out of here. He goes downstairs. He go, walks over to his car. And the killer is lying in wait and shoots him in the head. So they're pretty confident that it's a, some kind of a revenge killing. And again, they do their, you know, they, they do their stuff and they come up with the name of a suspect who they believe is good for the crime. And I believe, and based on their description, uh, that it was George Hodel. I don't know if you want to, how are we on time? Are we okay? Oh, we're fine. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's see if I have it here. I can read you. When I read this, in the, this was actually published in the newspaper. And uh, knowing what we know about George Hodel, uh, you tell me if this, uh, I can find it. You tell me if this sounds anything like um, uh, who they're talking about. I mean, I, I couldn't quite believe this. Uh, here it is. So this is an article that was uh, published in the newspaper. And I'll read it to you because, just because it's it's so distinct in its description. Now, this isn't a, this isn't a, this isn't a, who this isn't a crime profile. This is actually somebody they've identified and know who, who he is. <clears throat> and I'll read it. That big head, in big headlines, it says, 
society friend, in quotes, potential villain. Since uh, moving through the mystery shrouded drama of the murder of Dr. Leonard Seaver, there is, it was learned last night from an authoritative source, a potential perfect villain. Unlike the procession of women attracted to the slain aesthete, the villain had no love for the brilliant fellow who graced Salon so well. There is reason to believe it was pointed out that he had a jealous hatred for Seaver, even though pretending friendship for the man he may have marked for death. This suspect is believed to be a dope addict. That, that was easy. It is known that he has flown into frenzies, apparently under influence of morphine or some other narcotic. Among his intimates, his analytical mind has often been mentioned. He's possessed, some say, with a native cunning, which with real or imagined reason might be turned into diabolical shrewdness in concocting and carrying out a plot such as had a denouement in the cold-blooded murder of Leonard Seaver. The finger of suspicion has not yet been pointed directly toward this man. It is felt, however, that should he have written Seaver's death warrant, he would almost certainly have provided himself with a perfect alibi. Intelligent and suave, victor in many a battle of wits in Pasadena drawing rooms, Able to disguise his suspected dope addiction, the man is a dabbler in criminology. Phlegmatic enough normally, he is said to have become passionately fond of a woman, a woman among the scores with whom Seaver was acquainted. Did his passion flame to fury because he believed Seaver had won the woman's heart? Did this amateur of criminology become a ruthless slayer? So, I mean, it's almost a, it's really a perfect wow. description of George. And uh, Dad was in many debates in Pasadena salons at the time. Uh, Dr. Seaver was a patron of the arts and music, contributed to it. So he would have, he would have been, uh, there would have been that connection probably with the music. So, I mean, I think it's, so I was so confident that I had put together enough on this case to, uh, uh, Clear it. I actually went to Pasadena PD some years ago. I think it was back in 2015 or so. And I I set up at a meeting and I did a PowerPoint, an hour PowerPoint, presented the evidence to. Actually, I thought it would be one of the detectives. Actually, the chief of police uh, uh, sat down with me and went through, and just the two of us one on one. And I went through the whole PowerPoint with him. I said, "Now these documents, the person has been identified. He's going to be." either in your file or the DA's file. It was actually the DA's investigator that linked this guy. And he says, well, I'll, I'll have our guys take a look and we'll see if George Odell's name is in there. So, and uh, uh, a month went by, nothing. I called and talked to him. He says, well, he says, yeah, all of the uh, records have disappeared. We don't have anything on the case. And uh, apparently, I said, well, what about the DA? I said, most of this, he said, well, he said, I don't, my guys, I think, went down and checked. I don't, I don't think they did. He said, yeah. my guys checked it out. There's nothing, nothing to be found. <sighs> you know, it's like very frustrating, but um, 
you know, again, without any hard physical evidence, DNA, fingerprints, you know, it's almost at this stage, it's almost impossible to take it to court. Well, you wouldn't take it to court. He's dead now, but it'd be impossible to, you'd need that to say case solved. And, uh, so we'll probably never really know, but there's just so much there that just screams out George Hodel. And one and, of one of the things I'd love for you to kind of go back on too, that kind of links to what we were just talking about there. Um, a lot of things that you uncovered about his his youth um, kind of kind of lend to that. So, like for example, one of the things I thought was interesting is he is a pretty prolific writer early on, especially, you know, starting in high school and he's writing these essays and winning contests. But what's curious about it is he always kind of writes about the same theme. Yeah. So talk, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, so basically uh, we've talked a little bit about his, his uh, nine year old piano prodigy playing his own concerts. In addition to that, he's highly intelligent with this very high IQ. And in high school, he's two or three years ahead of his other students, graduates early. But in high school, um, he writes in both his junior and senior years, he writes in the, uh, in the high school annual. Uh, and the first essay he writes about is an essay that he talks about <clears throat> an insurance, uh, a woman and her husband and insurance policy that she failed to get. Anyway, the whole subject about it is about death. And then in his second, in his senior year, he writes another story, and it's a, it's a fictional story, short story, where he talks about a alpine hiker and his buddy. And they're hiking in the high uh, snowed mountains, and uh, a glacier comes along and kills them both. Again, it's the subject of the essay is death. So in both of these, he's, you know, focused on and, and, and um, fixated on the subject of death. And this is at, what, 14, you know. Uh, and then, uh, of course, the other real kicker is, um, so after he, he has an affair with a professor's wife at Caltech, she gets pregnant breaks up her marriage, <laughs> she goes east, uh, and he's now he's, what, 15, 15 years old, 15 or 16, has this affair, breaks up her marriage, she goes east, has the child, which she aptly names Folly. <laughs> Dad goes back east, says, I love you, I want to marry you, I want to raise our child, and the woman says, George, you're a child yourself. This whole thing has been a terrible mistake. Get out of my life. Okay, so there's a big rejection. Uh, he comes back. Uh, of course, he's he's asked to, after a year. He's asked to leave Caltech, so he gets a job as a cab driver. He's driving around. Interestingly, he's driving out of the Biltmore, and uh, another cabbie next to him is a guy, a young guy who's going to law school. His name is William H. Parker. <laughs> he will grow. He will grow up to be Chief Parker. Uh, LAPD's most famous uh, police chief. And he's driving cab with George back then. I'm not saying that there was any connection, but just uh, even though I don't believe in coincidence, let's call it a coincidence. Uh, but then he gets a job and he hires on at 17. He lies about his age uh, and, he, and he gets a job 
with the LA Record, which was one of the large major newspapers. And he's a crime re- a crime reporter for the LA Record, naturally. And this is during Prohibition. So he starts riding around with LAPD vice squad. And they're kicking doors and taking in the judge into custody with a young 22-year-old blonde. And um, he's writing these tabloid articles about the judge and the blonde and stuff. And he graduates and he starts riding around with LAPD homicide. And he starts going on these calls with them to the murder scenes. And again, tabloid articles, the bloody ace of diamonds next to the woman, you know, and stuff. And um, so he's buddies with, you know, the homicide detectives. Actually, in the early years, there's a, there's a big tell on this, that a huge connection <clears throat> uh, that goes a long ways to explain a lot of the cover-ups. But I, I want to leave that for your readers to discover. But it's, uh, it's a huge, you know, I thought... I had figured out the reason for the, you know, why didn't they pursue the the uh, Dahlia case? They had all the evidence. They had his confession on tape. And uh, uh, it was Thad Brown was the chief of detectives at the time. And uh, basically there was, I don't know if you recall this or if I've mentioned it, but there was actually a murder occurred during the stakeout. So these they had these 18 detectives staked out at our home. Uh, audio stakeout, microphones in the walls, not a phone tap, for six weeks, 24-7, 18 detectives. And on the third day, uh, I'm reading the transcript, which we uncovered 55 years later after my book came out, we discovered the secret Odell transcripts, the DA's office in the vault. I'm reading the transcripts, and it says uh, Odell and a Baron Haringa go downstairs to the basement. There's a blows are heard. A woman screams. Blows are heard. More blows. The woman screams again. And I'm looking at this and saying, what the hell's going on here? Why aren't they out the door over there? They're five minutes away at Hollywood Station. Do a rescue. They do nothing. Anyway, and there's a whole bunch of reasons. We, don't, we won't go into all the reasons why they didn't, but, but, but uh, they didn't. And I think that was probably, you know, LAPD, you have to understand the timing. Parker was literally weeks away from taking command as the new chief. So basically, um, I think they said, look, he's left. He's out of the country. He's fled. Maybe we find him. Maybe we don't. Let's lock this away for now. We'll come back to it. But let's clean up Dodge, get rid of all the corruption and move forward. And I think that was basically what they did. Of course, they never came back to it. So, uh, but so there's that connection. Thad Brown, or uh, I mean, uh, the DA ordering that Thad Brown, all the records be turned back to Thad Brown, close the case. So that's what they did. Anyway, in the early years, we'll see how this all connects. In the early years, it's just ama- amazing. I thought I, I thought that was the answer, but there was another couple of more answers lying in wait for me in the early years. Yeah, so it's 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 so interesting. Now we we know today so much more about serial killers and the psychology behind serial killers than we ever did before. Um, and obviously, back in those days, there's nothing like a national database. There's no DNA testing, none of that type of thing. Right. Uh, but at, as you're investigating all of these early crimes, we do know now that you know typically serial killers, you know, their first crime is kind of 
half thought out. It's a little sloppy maybe. And then they sort of escalate as they almost, for lack of a better term, perfect their kind of MO. Um, Is that, is that kind of the story that you saw as you were uncovering these unsolved crimes? Uh, Let's see. Kind of yes and no, I guess. Um, He was, even at his first crime at what I'm saying is 14, it was pretty well thought out. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a random killing. It was, it was definitely premeditated. Um, And he used a lot of the, Slick crime signatures that he would use much later in life, and actually all through his crimes, he used them even that early. And uh, uh, so, again, but you're not dealing with your average person. You know, he's because of his high intelligence. He's and, and he saw himself as a Moriarty, as a master criminal. You know, at, at, from the get go, and, and the taunting, and ultimately, of course, his ego would be his downfall. You know, the uh, fact that he had to conceal. Actually, on the Zodiac stuff, he was challenged by a cryptologist, the the most senior uh, cryptologist in the world, wrote and said, you know, you don't have the guts to put put your name in a cryptogram, because if you do, I'll solve it. Well, that challenge went out to George, and of course, he couldn't resist it. (laughs) And he did, and the guy didn't solve it, and nobody solved it up until... You know, uh, this French, this Frenchman in Paris, you know, 60 years later. So, uh, you know, most of these crimes were, were pretty, pretty well thought out. And uh, again, you can't you can't think of George as a 14 year old. You have to think of him as a man in his at least in his 20s or 30s. You know, even at that young age, he had that kind of a mind and brilliance. Uh, but he. There were mistakes. He, he he did leave clues. He did leave enough clues that, uh, or if you're a trained homicide detective, you just might find them. <laughs> and yeah. uh, of all the ironies that I would grow up to be a homicide detective for with 300 murders under my, you know, and I was confident I'd be able to show he had nothing to do with this. Yeah, what, what's interesting too is you know we we talked about his youth and his childhood. I'm always fascinated by what what goes into the stew per se that results in creating, you know, a serial killer, a a monster who's, you know, murdering without remorse. And, you know, so you talked a a little bit about his, his childhood and his, his upbringing and kind of how strict it was and how he had a hatred for his mother. And then, you know, on top of that, he's just this brilliant kid, this prodigy who is kind of setting himself up for it. He's got this fascination with murder, um, he's, you know, he's writing for, uh, these local, uh, publications and he's going to crime scenes and he's making friends with law enforcement and the homicide detectives. And so he's clearly as a smart, smart kid, smart guy, he has a pretty firm understanding, I would think of how the homicide department works and what they look for. And he's, I'm sure taking mental notes on every trip he goes on. Right. And of course, as he grew older and he, he got more and more power. And ultimately, you know, he gets the position, you know, he does his, he's a soul surgeon in the logging camp. He starts out as a young doctor in Arizona and uh, uh, has developed high skills in surgery. He then moves on uh, to, to Arizona and New Mexico and becomes a, a district health officer for the state. Then in the thirties, he, commits that 
murder in, in, in the Mesquite, he commits that 1938 murder, and then immediately, within weeks, leaves and comes to Los Angeles, joins L.A. Health Department, quickly rises to the top. I mean, just within a few years, he goes from new guy, newbie on the job, to the, the senior health officer for all of L.A. County, and in VD, specializing in venereal disease control. So he's the VD czar of Los Angeles. He's got all the files on who's doing what to whom and who's who's getting infected. And it's the politicos, it's the cops, it's you know, he's also performing abortions at that time, secret abortions. So he's, you know, large and in charge. He's really what 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 you would call it untouchable. You know, he had so much on so many. And then when I got into the early years to find out how much more he had because of his early relationship with police from those early years, you know, and these are the same players. They've also, as he's rising to the top, these young detectives are rising to the top, you know, and, um, and he's really got him by the huevos for sure. And, and he's got a lot of power and, uh, and not only that, but everybody is scared to hell of him. I mean, you know, uh, a lot of his surrealist friends, man, Ray and a lot of the others, knew, you know, after the fact, I'm not saying they were involved, but they knew that he had committed the Black Dahlia. There was a whole inner circle that knew. And they were, you know, terrified. Uh, you know, basically, they, they had not wanted nothing to do with George after that. And they, you know, basically were kind of running and hiding from him because he knew they knew. And uh, this that was his ultimate surrealist uh, masterpiece, so to speak, you know, this this body, the posing of the body. Uh, and I go into a whole thing of murder is a fine art, which was this whole surreal dream thing. And, you know, that was the difference between George and the surrealists. They talked the talk, had their wine. He walked the walk. He actually did it. You know, he went out and, and this was his masterpiece. And he pays homage to Man Ray and uh, on the body with it, multiple different things. So, and amazingly, they all pay homage back to George after the fact in, in their some of their artwork. And all of this, I, this is probably going to be a strong theme in the docuseries to explain this, because you have to, you know, he really believed there was no difference between the dream state and the waking state. And if you go there, you can do anything, you know. And I think this was all part of his sickness. I know it was. Part of his madness was this whole idea of nothing matters. You know, do what thou wilt, it'll be the whole of the law, that type of thing. Wow, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. And I remember reading that portion of, of the book where you kind of present some of Man Ray's works. I think it was the Minotaur was the one right. specifically that he modeled Elizabeth Short's, um, you know, the way he posed the body after. And it side by side, it's, it's eerie. You know, how, how right. similar. And, and considering that Man Ray's Minotaur is a woman whose body is cut in half and, you know, posed in that position, that the hands above the head, like what we would call a surrender position, is what they call the Minotaur position. And there's much more. There, I came up, you know, again, another another reader came up and said, well, take a look at the Lay Equivoque by Man Ray. And in that, it's a woman who I believe actually was Elizabeth Short posing for Man Ray. There's indications that she was posing for a number of artists back then. And I believe she posed for this Le Equivoque in 1943. 
and it's a woman whose face is uh, Chris. Well, the hair is Elizabeth Short. It looks everything about it looks like Elizabeth Short, but the face is crisscross patterns uh, and concentric lines cross. Well, Dad carves that crisscross pattern on her hip, on her naked body. Uh, and again, an homage to Man Ray from his earlier work. And it's just, I mean, there's just so much. So now I've got like nine or ten connections. I discovered another Man Ray drawing in the, I think he did it in the late 60s. And it's a, it's a minotaur. Uh, the top part is a minotaur, a, a half man, half bull. And it's bleeding out. And the bleeding out forms its legs and lower body. And again, you know, it's just like this really crazy making stuff. It just doesn't stop all the linkage. Yeah, this is the type of crowd he was hanging out with, which I'm sure is just feeding into his kind of delusional world of of dreams and and uh, reality and, and dream states uh, kind of blending together. Um, right. Surrealist art will definitely, uh, it's definitely a, a different kind of unique form of art. And I can, I can assume that, uh, that probably lent well to his kind of mindset already at that point. Right. And, you know, I had always thought of dad as the scientist, you know, I never thought of him as really being into woo woo stuff or, you know, metaphysics or that. But then, you know, he wrote me a letter which I printed in Black Tail Avenger called, I called it the parable of the sparrow. And it's a interesting letter in that he talks about, uh, it's a very personal letter to me. And he talks about other dimensions that lie behind and within and other, and it's, it's quite metaphysical. <laughs> and, and, uh, it's the only time I've ever heard him go in that direction. You know, basically, uh, I mean, I married in a, a, a rather well-known, Hollywood astrologer to the stars, right? And I, I can always tell that he always felt that, you know, Steve, you know, you know, this is like, <laughs> don't get sucked into this stuff. And um, uh, anyway, I, I was surprised until then I realized this letter was very revealing in that sense that there must be, must have been something there that he saw. Now, whether he saw it from a scientific standpoint you know, the multiple dimensions and stuff uh, could be, but it was, it was an enlightening letter. That's so interesting. It kind of leads me to uh, one of the things I want to ask you about is, you know, you talk about in, in the, the latest books, um, just the fact that he had such a unique, in both the Black Dahlia murders, the Lone Women murders, the Zodiac murders, there's a very specific and unique uh, MO and crime signature. Talk about what makes it so unique? What was so different about the way that George um, performed these murders that kind of stands out from your normal kind of crime of opportunity? Well, of course, the first thing that jumps out is, now I had 300 murder investigations under my belt in my years at a Hollywood homicide. In zero of those, none of those had I ever had a suspect who's writing and taunting the police. Uh, you know, and, and um, yeah, it's just, a lot of the handwriting is disguised. Some of it was cut and paste stuff. But in in most of George's crimes, he's doing this. And again, it comes back to the ego. You know, uh, it's I'm smarter than you. Catch me if you can. You know that type of thing. Um, so that's that's very unusual in itself. Um, 
also, of course, he's all over the place with the victims. Uh, there's no, you know, the a lot of profiles will tell you, well, we have a specific victim type. As far as I'm concerned, that's BS. Uh, you know, he was all of children, young women, a number of men for revenge, a number of men he's, he killed, like like Dr. Seaver. Um, there's another one in the early years that I mentioned, too, that apparently had found out information about him. So he actually follows him, and he flees. He's afraid he's going to be killed. Sure enough, he flees. And this is in the 30s, uh, late 30s, I think. And he flees, and he kills him in, in um, forget what, St. Louis or somewhere. Um, not St. Louis. Um, anyway, he flees him, follows him back east, shoots him, and incredibly leaves, signs this, he knew too much, and he signs the Zodiac sign on it. This is in the 30s, the circle and the cross. And... Um, so I think that was a revenge or, you know, so he was afraid the guy was going to reveal something that he accidentally discovered about George. And there's a number of killings like that. Um, and uh, so, you know, basically, and of course, the other thing is the extreme, the extreme overkill. In other words, he, he, he did it all. Strangulations, gunshot, knife, rope, um, uh, most of them were strangled with either a wire or a rope. Uh, in one young lady, he hung her from a tree, actually hung her, um, in one of the San Diego crimes. Um, so, he, you know, the, the, the overkill, the stomping on a number of them after they're dead, he stomps them so hard on the chest that the rib cage punctures the heart. He did uh, cigarette burns to the body. He did that with Elizabeth Short, and he did that with another one of the, the in the Mesquite victims, the the, the young daughter. Not you know she was in her twenties. Uh, cigarette burns, very unusual. I never had any cigarette burns in any of my cases. Cigar or cigarette, um, but so the overkill really stands out. Uh, that's a pretty unusual uh, to the extent that he was doing it. And the, and the extended torture, um, and uh, so basically, he he kind of jumps out, especially you know. And I, of course, I recognize a lot of handwriting that wasn't disguised. I mean, it's my father. You know your parents' handwriting, and your listeners know theirs, and I know my father's. And even though in some of them he disguised it, meant in it several he didn't, and it's, it's very clear that it's. Is writing a lot of the Zodiac stuff is clearly George Hodel. I had, I sent it to the the San Francisco st the state uh, investigators up there on Zodiac to have it analyzed, and they came back and said, "Well, we we can't say it's his, but we can eliminate him as the hand, as the author of the Zodiac writings." And um, so, uh, and that's what's frustrating. I mean, I, I think there's potentially there is. Who knows what evidence is left in many of these crimes? But you know, uh, I have Dad's full DNA profile, and uh, I got I've offered it to all of the San Francisco law enforcement agencies. There's five or six up there that are handling Zodiac separate. None of them, you know, crickets, no response. Um, so finally, I said, "Effort," and I, I uh, published 
his full DNA profile in, in the early years. <laughs> here totally it is. <laughs> yeah, here it is. Take it or not, you know. Yeah. I mean, you, you'd think that at the very least, just to so you'd stop bugging them, you know, like they would just test it, you know, rule them out if they don't believe you and, uh, and yeah. be done with it. But they don't. Yeah, it's interesting that they. Well, but on what here's one of the problems with the DNA with Zodiac. They've got five or six different samples from different agencies. Best I can tell, they have never compared them to each other. Unbelievably. Oh. And, you know, again, it's ego, territoriality. Nobody's going to solve my case. And so if they compare, I don't, we don't know that there's any actual uh, confirmed Zodiac DNA in the existence because, number one, they haven't compared them to my knowledge. And if they had, they would have said, we have Zodiac's confirmed DNA. You know, all I need is two of them to match. And then they, they could say confidently, you know, we have his DNA. But they don't. And And I... I suspect any one of them could be his DNA or none of them, you know. So that's the other problem. And uh, again, the egos and, the, you know, it's, it's frustrating. But I've never counted on law enforcement. I've always felt my readers are my judge and jury. <laughs> But yeah, it's just it's it's interesting because um, I think you talk about this in the second book, the Black Dahlia Avenger Two. Um, just by virtue of publishing the first book and getting it out in the public eye, all of a sudden, you know, folks who are involved or related to people who are involved or around at that time, you know, all this additional evidence starts to come forward. Um, and so you start out with what I thought was a pretty decent mountain of. Uh, of evidence to begin with. And again, you even talk about it, the fact that there's not necessarily a smoking gun, which is frustrating, but you've got all this circumstantial evidence. It's a mountain of it. And then you've got even more that comes about as a result of the first book, which results in the second book and the third book. And at, at some point you just have to say like, I think we got our guy, you know? Yeah. Well, Absolutely. And there are many, many have come, have, have agreed. I mean, you know, you've got the law enforcement, you know, this is mind boggling where you've got the top four top cops on LA uh, or in, in LA saying the case was solved and it was George Odell. I mean, wh what more do you want? You know, and, um, and basically LAPD's position has been, I've been through what three chiefs now with letters and saying, you know, let's just do DNA. And, uh, They've all had the same position. Well, we're just too busy with other crimes to uh, take a look at this, you know. And, and, you know, they don't know what busy was. I mean, when I was working in the 70s, that was busy. We were getting a 1,000 murders in the county, and we were getting, in Hollywood, we were getting just Hollywood Division, which is one of 18 divisions. And now I guess there's 21, but back then it was 18. We were getting like 120 so one every th a new murder every three days for us. That's busy, you know. I think wow. they had 350 murders for the entire year, you know. So, and they've got a cold case unit which we never had back then, which specializes only in. So it, it, it's BS. The the problem is, these are the two, you know, Parker and Thad Brown, Chief of Detectives Brown and Chief Parker, were the two greatest heroes on LAPD. They were my heroes, you know, Parker and. Brown were, were on a job when I was working and they were truly our, my heroes. So they don't want to, you know, they, they don't want to throw mud on their two greatest heroes. And 
they can't defeat the evidence. So all they can do is say, we're too busy with other stuff, you know, and that's been going on for 22 years. (laughs) And it seems like even though there's not, um, you know, we don't, don't have a ton of evidence left over. Cause obviously as, as you said in the books, like a lot of it magically disappeared um, or got misplaced in, in some form or fashion. There's still, you know, obviously handwriting samples that, that you can analyze. There's potentially a DNA profile. Um, you know, obviously you know, it would be fairly easy and you've done it. You've placed him in those locations at that time. Um, his entire background kind of lends to the fact that, he had the skills and the know-how and the interest, you know. So there's a lot of other things that you can look at. Um, you know, back in those days, you know, I'm sure that, you know, they didn't think 50 years ahead and thinking that one day something left behind, like DNA or, you know, handwriting, because we have AI technology now and, and things of that nature, would come to bite them in the butt. And you'd think that eventually one of these days through, you know, advancements in technology, they'd be able to at least put a stamp on it and, you know, confirm it. Absolutely. And, and as far as the handwriting, I, my expert, I got a you know, court certified expert who came back and identified multiple samples of his handwriting and said, this is definitely George. It's been 23 years now and there's never been a handwriting expert that's come out and said, no, it's not. Okay. Wow. No, nobody has, nobody has said no. And, and they won't because they know their reputation would be on the line. And, and uh, if, you know, if it's, we do ultimately get some DNA or something. Uh, so nobody has contradicted it. And, and uh, uh, they could easily do it. I mean, you know, but they're not going to because, and, and others have looked at it and said, well, inconclusive. You know, it's like, I can't really say yes or no. You know, not enough samples. I need lowercase handwriting or something, you know. But, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's been very frustrating, but it's also been very rewarding. I mean, like I say, these armchair detectives have been amazing. They're, any one of them could be my partner any day. You know, I mean, <laughs> they're really some amazing thinkers out there that come up with stuff. And uh, and I credit them in the book. And speaking of that, while I'm on the subject of crediting, I want to credit a good friend of mine. He's a retired Dallas, Texas police officer. He's a photographer. Uh, he's an author himself of fiction, mystery fiction. His name's Robert Sadler. And Robert did all the graphics for me in the early years and, and, the, and some of the editing, quite a bit of the editing. And he's just been, we've been friends for, I don't know, it's been 10, 15 years. And he's just an amazing guy, viability. And again, it was just initially connecting on the e- uh, email, you know, and, and ultimately we met, and, and uh, he's just been a huge help to me on this, and still is. Uh, I'll leave, I give you a little taunt here. I, just within the last few days, literally, um, I was contacted by, uh, right now, he wants to go by anonymous for now, by an individual. And he's basically come up with more evidence on the cryptology, on the zodiac ciphers. And, uh, which I'll be revealing. I, I, I'm thinking I might update uh, Most Evil 2 and add this as a new two, but it's very dramatic uh, new evidence that's, uh, you know, again, just keeps on confirming more and more. So I'm, I'm real excited about that. <laughs> it never stops. It's like <laughs> my, my boys say, Steve, well, I did move. I don't know if I told you. Do you know I'm up in yeah. Washington? Yeah. Yes, so yeah. I was in 
you know, I was pulled back from Bellingham after my initial retirement, what I thought was my initial retirement, for 22 years to L.A. and write the eight books. And then my son's last year says, Dad, you know, it's time for you to retire, you know. It's, <laughs> you know, come on, Dad, you know, give it up. And come yeah. back up here. And there, you know, one boy's in Seattle, one's in Bellingham. And I, and I thought about it, and I thought, you know, they're probably right. And uh, when it got to, you know, these, I'm tired of these 105, 110 degree days here in <laughs> Sherman Oaks, California, you know, down there. And so I moved up last November. I found a house. And as I sit here, I'm looking out at the San Juan Islands and the bay. Oh, and the water, wow. And the water. And it's, I think it's about 67 out. And uh, I really love it. It's been really good for me to make the change. Uh, although I do think I may be stuck with one more book. <laughs> <laughs> there was there was one early years crime that I, again, it was like the in the mesquite. It was too it's too much. to. It, it's a book in itself. So I'll, I'll probably have to probably will do that. And um, when I joined LAPD, you know, I the reason I joined LAPD at 21 was that I can retire at 20 years and 20 minutes. So I could retire at 41, you know. I'm now reevaluating that and looking at maybe 85. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's gotta be tough because, uh, with every new book you put out, you know, I'm sure new evidence continues to come in and then you're like, Oh gosh, like, yeah, I, I think I need to do do another one, you know? So. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's or update. Yeah. Uh, yep. I, I'm definitely going to have to update with this new evidence on Zodiac because it's, it's a kind of a, a wow moment when I, when I read and saw what he had come up with. And it's, it's, uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, at some point, uh, I feel, and you know, I'm not the type that, you know, sits in the rocking chair and says, well, it's really a pretty day out. You know, I, I need to keep my mind active, you know, and it's good for me. I just, just turned 80, you know, and it's like, okay, it's time to, you know, uh, why not keep going, you know? Yeah, well, you're sharp, sharp as ever. Um, you know, you're absolutely. I, I can tell just in the the last time and and this time talking to you that uh, there's a clear reason why you were so successful as a as a detective. Um, you know, you're you're absolutely meticulous, and and that's one of the things that I love about all of your books. As uh, awesome. you really dive in there and, and create a very very compelling argument that uh, you know, in my opinion, it's uh, pretty pretty open and shut <laughs> at this point. Yeah, well, I. Th- yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And, and there are a lot of, lot that agree. I mean, I've had so much support and from an awful lot of people. I mean, even in the reviewing of my books, you know, the, the Michael Connellys of the world and, the, you know, I mean, a, a lot of really respected people have, have come to support me and say, yeah, case closed. And, uh, and a lot, quite a few in law enforcement too, you know, and they, you know, they're used to putting cases together and they know when you've made it, cross that threshold and it's it's actually a fileable case and the early years were a challenge because some are less strong than others but there's some very top infamous cases there you know i haven't gone into names uh i kind of like to leave that for the surprise of it you know for the readers but there there are some very very headline they were headlines for weeks uh back then big stuff and uh other people have tried to solve them and stuff and i think i make a a pretty solid case on most of them some are 
not quite there, you know, but, but uh, again, it was, uh, uh, I make it very clear that I'm not claiming these are solved. I'm saying you, you be the judge. Yeah. And I, and I love the, the way that you present it in the book. I thought that was uh, a really fun way to kind of present the information and allow the reader to kind of take the evidence that you've presented and kind of make their own determination at the end. I thought that was a really creative way to do that. Thanks. And, and, and I have a, a very good, a very talented reader doing the audible on the books. Uh, we'll start, well, I'm starting with book one uh, of the early years, and he's just about finishing that. So I'll put that, I'll be able to put that up for, you know, um, as an audible book. Oh, awesome. Um, it's Ma- Malcolm Hillgartner, and he's a, he's, he's done it several of my other books and he's really good. He's just got a great voice and, uh, and he's highly intelligent. He gets it, you know. So uh, between the two, getting it and reading it uh, with that great voice, it's really very exciting. And uh, he's just finishing book one, so I'll, I'm sure I'll have him do book two too. But that's fantastic. Well, the uh, the two new books, the early years, uh, the further serial crimes of George Hill Hodel, MD. Um, out now. Uh, I highly encourage folks to go out and get them. If you haven't listened to the first uh, couple episodes, it was a two-parter uh, about a year back uh, with Steve. Um, we dive you know, even deeper there and, uh, and continued on uh, with the early murders here. So um, listen to those, check them out, go get the books. And uh, there's so much more evidence uh, in the books that we could, couldn't possibly cover even if we had 15 episodes. Um <laughs> So, yeah. so go check them out. But um, as always, uh, thank you so much. It's always fascinating. Like I said, you always bring a wealth of information, and uh, it you know I could listen to you talk all day. So, <laughs> well, thanks, John. I re- I really enjoy doing it with you, and you've been. Uh, you, I, I, I love your two prior episodes. They were great. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks, Steve. All right. Were these murders all early crimes committed by Dr. George Hill Hodel? Was he responsible for only some of them, or none of them at all? If even some of them can be traced back to the brilliant man who was once a child prodigy with a fascination of death, then only he knows the true number of his crimes. And he took that secret to his grave. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this or any of the episodes prior to this one, please subscribe, rate, and review, and please consider telling a friend. I'll be back next week with an all-new mystery, and until then, you've been listening to From the Void. From the Void.